Okay, um, just a little bit about myself, um, very briefly as we get into our discussion tonight. Um, I served as a senior pastor for 20 years in two military um, communities. One was an army community down in uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama. I was there for five years. During that time, I was a National Guard chaplain uh, for a portion of that time, and then went from there to serve in Montgomery, Alabama, which is an Air Force community, Maxwell Maxwell Air Force Base is there in that town. And so for 20 years, um, served as a senior pastor in in those two locations and churches. Um, At the end of that 15 years of that second church, uh, the church gave me a sabbatical for the summer, and I spent that sabbatical in Colorado Springs, Colorado, with mostly military friends, and um, so visited a lot of different churches, and every week when I would go visit a church, uh, the next week I would call the church office and ask, hey, uh, is there a pastor in the office that would like to go to lunch? I'm a pastor on sabbatical and in town and visited your church yesterday and would like to go to lunch, and so I was able to go to lunch with... um, I believe nine different pastors that summer, and um, I would interview them and ask them, because Colorado Springs is a major hub for the military, um, numerous bases there, including the Air Force Academy, and I would ask those churches something like, um, uh, do you guys have a lot of military? And of course, all of them, these were churches that had good reputations, and they would all say yes oh, yeah, we, we have tons of military. And I would say, well, tell me about, I'd love to know about your strategies. What are you doing to evangelize and um, do outreach to military? Not the ones that come to you and, you know, show up. I'm sure you're very friendly to those. But what about the people that don't know you and have never heard about your church, may not even be looking for a church? What about those individuals? How are you reaching out to them? <clears throat> then I would ask them, um, what kind of strategies do you guys have for training and equipping them for the unique needs and challenges that they have <clears throat> as military singles or families? And then the third question I ask is, um, do you do anything to that's, you know, um, strat- strategic in terms of caring for them or supporting them? Because, you know, they have a different kind of lifestyle. And then lastly, I would ask them, um, are you networking with anybody within the region or beyond the region so that when the military leave your church, you can send them out and connect them because you've invested in them and then they make a bigger difference because they've been with you in the next location, wherever they're going. Are you networking with anybody along the military pathways that are connected to Colorado Springs? And so I would have lunch with these pastors and then uh, talk to them about this. And all nine of those pastors said to me in one shape or another, we don't have any strategies. And one pastor of a very large church, um, probably four or 5,000 people in that city that go to that particular church, he was not the senior pastor, but he said to me, he said, hmm, wonder why we don't have strategies because... Military is the largest subculture of our city. 
And we don't have strategies. He went on to tell me, he said, our senior pastor is a real strategy nut. He's got strategies about everything under the sun. But we don't have any strategies in terms of how we're going to reach, disciple, care for, and connect military that come and go from our city. Many of them get connected to our church and then leave and go literally all over the world. Hmm, I wonder how we miss that. One question that every church needs to ask, every evangelical church, is how can we most strategically advance the gospel in our area and from our area to the ends of the earth? Now, that particular question right there comes straight out of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In fact, many of our uh, Southern Baptist churches and SBCV churches talk about having an Acts 1-8 strategy. Acts 1-8 mission strategy comes right out of Acts 1-8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Some people even say that when those words were written down, and they're written down as a quote from Jesus, that Jesus was actually laying out his strategy for his church to evangelize the world. We know from the other gospels, for example, the gospel of Luke, that Jesus said the gospel is going to first be preached in Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem it will be preached to all the nations. And so when Jesus gave that strategy and said to his disciples, wait, and not many days from now, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They didn't understand what that was, of course, but we know that that was simply an empowerment, the creation of the church, and an empowerment for the mission of the church to evangelize the world beginning in Jerusalem. And so Jesus is actually laying out a strategy in terms of how he intends to carry out the great commission that he gives to his disciples. So every church needs to ask themselves the question, what is the most strategic way that we can advance the gospel within our Jerusalem? For us, that would be Hampton Roads. And then beyond our own region, to the surrounding region, and then even to the remotest parts of the earth. One of the things that we see in the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit was very strategic in terms of how he was carrying out the mission of Jesus. There are numerous strategies that are mentioned in the book of Acts, and I just want to mention some of these. We're, we won't go into detail about them. But these are strategies that the Holy Spirit used to accomplish the Great Commission. Uh, one that comes to mind, this was one of the first strategies of the Holy Spirit, was persecution. We know in Acts chapter 7, the end of chapter 7, and also in chapter 8, that when Stephen was martyred, the first martyr of the church, that God used that persecution and the death of Stephen to scatter his church. And that was a deliberate strategy of the Holy Spirit 
to spread the church and to begin this one Acts 1-8 strategy. The church had been fairly um, concentrated in Jerusalem for four to five years. And at the right time, after the church had been established and the prototype had been perfected, then the Holy Spirit allowed the death of Stephen because God wanted to scatter the believers so that they would evangelize and disciple and begin to multiply the church in other places, Judea, Samaria first, and then we'll see in Acts chapter 13 uh, through 28 to the ends of the earth. So persecution is oftentimes and still is today in many places in the world a strategy of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the Great Commission. Another strategy of the Holy Spirit was uh, the dysphoria in the Old Testament. We know, we remember from our Old Testament history that under the Babylonian captivity and the Assyrian captivity, that God dispersed the Jewish people to what later became the Roman Empire. And in those places where the Jews were dispersed, that they settled down um, raised families, established synagogues. And then in the New Testament period, when um, the gospel began to be preached, that the first thing that the early missionaries did is they went to these places where there were synagogues and they preached the gospel there because obviously the Jews already had a foundation in the Old Testament. And so that was the beginning place of preaching the gospel. That in the Old Testament was a judgment of God, a discipline of his people. And it became in the New Testament a strategy of the Holy Spirit to evangelize and disciple the nations. Another strategy of the Holy Spirit was the to plant churches in the great urban centers of commerce and trade in the first century. Jerusalem, Antioch, Caesarea, Ephesus, Philippi was along one of the most famous Roman roads. Um, And so what God would do is plant (coughs) churches. He would lead the people to the missionaries to go and preach in these centers of commerce and trade because there was a lot of traffic and activity, people coming and going. And it was a way for the gospel to be advanced. Also, we see in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit used philosophy and education in those systems as um, a way to harness opportunities for the gospel to be spread. We know in Acts chapter 19, for example, verses 9 and 10, that Paul first preached at the synagogue and then basically was kicked out of that synagogue, and he began lecturing or preaching in the school of Tyrannus. And Luke says in Acts chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, what is Paul doing there? Paul is being led by the Holy Spirit to use a system of philosophy and education and a place where people were educated as a platform for preaching the gospel and spreading the good news. Another strategy that was used by the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts was controversy. Um, 
Paul, for example, in Acts chapter 22, um, began a controversy because there were Pharisees and Sadducees that were trying to persecute him, and he stirred up a controversy. And oftentimes, God uses controversy to bring about the conversion of new believers. We think of Acts chapter 16, the Philippian jailer, for example. Um, The Holy Spirit used controversy and persecution to bring about the salvation of the jailer and his family. Paul makes actually an interesting statement in Romans chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, um, indicating that he actually had this as a strategy himself. He said, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles in order to provoke the Jews to jealousy. His goal was to stir up the Jews by talking about his ministry to the Gentiles so that they would think about the gospel. And then in that context, if you read that, what you'll find out is that Paul used this oftentimes it sometimes involves suffering for, for him, himself, and the, mission, and the other missionaries and believers that were with him. But nevertheless, it was a strategy of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the point. The Holy Spirit wants to use and be very strategic in how he advances the gospel. Here's the question I want to put before you tonight, and we're going to look at some scripture here in just a moment. But I want you to think about this with me. Did the Holy Spirit have a strategy to utilize the social networks of the Roman military to advance the gospel? Did the Holy Spirit have a strategy to advance, to utilize the social networks of the Roman military to advance the gospel? And what I would like to do uh, tonight with you very quickly Um, in this first portion of what we're, our subject tonight, the gospel for the military, is to tell you a story, and again, it's just summary, and then we're going to read a text out of Acts chapter 10. But to uh, put forth the thesis that the Holy Spirit, in fact, did have a strategy to use the Roman military to advance the gospel. Uh, In Acts chapter 21 through chapter 28, Um, Paul just finishes his third missionary journey and he, if you, in most of your study Bibles, if you have maps in the back of your Bible and it, it will lay out the first journey, the second journey, the third journey from Acts 13 and following, then it comes to Acts chapter 21 and chapter 21 through chapter 28, it will say something like Paul's journey to Rome. I like to think of that period of time in Paul's life as a fourth missionary journey where God put Paul with and under the military in order to utilize those social networks of the military in order to advance the gospel. And just very quickly to summarize that story, in Acts chapter 21, Paul finishes, uh, in Acts chapter 19, finishes the third missionary journey And he's already communicated that he intends to go to Jerusalem to take the offering that was taken up for the the, um, famine that was uh, in, because of the famine that was going on. He wants to go to Jerusalem and then he intends to go to Rome. So he goes to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 21, goes into the temple. Some Jews 
from Asia stir up the crowds, accuse Paul of being unfaithful to the Scripture, teaching things that are contrary to the law of Moses, and bringing um, Gentiles into the temple courts. A controversy develops. He's arrested, taken into custody by a couple of centurions and some Roman troops, and is taken into the barracks. Now, Paul is in the barracks for several days. Before he goes into the barracks, he is on the stairwell. He asks one of the um, commanders if he could say a word, and he is allowed to preach the gospel. Uh, controversy broke out because of, of what he was saying about the Gentiles being saved, and so he was taken into the barracks. Now, what do you think that Paul is doing in the barracks for three or four days? There was a large garrison of soldiers, about 1,000 soldiers in what is called the Fortress of Antonia there in Jerusalem. And uh, Paul is in, in the barracks, and Paul is talking about Jesus. And who is in the barracks? Roman soldiers. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that's a coincidence, or do you think that is a strategy of the Holy Spirit to use Paul to make the gospel known to those who are in the military. Paul's nephew uh, comes to visit him. The only time in Scripture that any of Paul's relatives are mentioned, his nephew comes to visit him and tells him that a plot has been formed to kill Paul. And so Paul says, go and tell the commanding officer. The commanding officer is Claudius Lysias. Paul goes, uh, the nephew goes and tells him and the commanding officer decides to transfer the Apostle Paul, the prisoner, to Caesarea, which was about 40 miles away. And they leave in the heat of the night, about 9 o'clock at night, and 470 soldiers are sent out to take Paul, the prisoner, to Caesarea. They walk all through the night. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you think the Apostle Paul is doing with those 470 soldiers as they are transporting him to Caesarea. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the gospel. He's making known the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. They get to a little place called Antipatris, which is halfway between Jerusalem and Caesarea. And um, there, some of the soldiers go back to uh, Jerusalem. Others are there for a couple of days to, waiting to take the Apostle Paul on to Caesarea. And then they go to Caesarea. And Luke tells us in um, chapter 23 of Acts that Paul is in Caesarea for two years. Caesarea is a very important city. It's a port city. It's the capital of the Roman province of Judea. It is home to a large army garrison. Paul is being kept in Herod's Praetorium, which is the governor's official residence. And for two years, Paul is kept there in prison. And John Stott, who has written in his commentary that perhaps this was the most effective strategic ministry of the Apostle Paul's life, 
And um, just to give you one verse of scripture that shows us the significance of his time there, this is Acts 25, verse 23. It says, on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice, Agrippa's the king, Bernice is his wife, amid great pomp, means it was a very important meeting, and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus. Festus was the governor. Paul was brought in and Paul preaches the gospel. For two years, Paul is kept in Caesarea. Now again, let me ask you a question. Do you think that is a coincidence or do you think that is the strategy of the Holy Spirit to place Paul with and under the military in order to utilize the social networks of the military to advance the gospel. Acts chapter 27, after these two years, Paul is placed on two or three ships. I like to tell Navy chaplains that Paul is the prototype Navy chaplain. He ministered under the commander. He encouraged the troops. He spoke the word of God. And ultimately, he was a blessing to the unit. You remember the story in Acts chapter 27 of the shipwreck uh, on Malta. They're there for three months. Um, Luke records that there are 276 people on board the ship. Probably 80 to 100 of those are Roman soldiers. You have three missionaries deployed with the military, Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that was a coincidence that God strategically arranged by his providence to place three missionaries with deployed troops. Now, true, Paul was a prisoner, but he was also a missionary. You remember they shipwrecked on the island, and God brought about basically a revival on the island because of the healing power of God through the apostle Paul. And the leader of the island, his father was sick unto death, and Paul laid his hands on him and healed him. And the governor of the island basically gave um, these 276 um, people on board this ship all that they needed for the next leg of the journey. Then they go to Rome, Acts chapter 28, um, verses 16 through 31. Paul is there in Rome basically for two years in the camp of the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard is like the special forces. He's guarded, guarded by soldiers, allowed to stay in his own quarters. And Luke says that large numbers came to him every day, and there he taught with openness unhindered about the kingdom of God. Now again, let me ask you a question. Was that a coincidence that God had the Apostle Paul with the Roman military and with the Praetorian Guard, which were, according to one um, commenta commentator and scholar, about 16,000 strong there in mostly Rome, but in some place, other places as well, but very influential. And Paul was there in the midst of their camp teaching and preaching the kingdom of God and spreading the gospel every day. And those that heard him were not only Jews and Gentiles, but they were uh, Roman military. <clears throat> you remember when Paul wrote the prison epistles, 
um, he wrote in Philippians, and I want to put this quote up. Some of you, you may can't read this quote, but I'll read it for you now. When he wrote the prison epistles, he is writing from, most people think, uh, Rome, what is described in the last part of the book of Acts. And he writes to the Philippians and he says, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, that is his circumstances of being with and under the military, um, in captivity, house arrest, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Now, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that my circumstances, in other words, being with and under the military, being restricted as a missionary by virtue of the fact that he's under house arrest, that those circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul was all about the greater progress of the gospel. You remember what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. Here's, here's the way Paul would do. If something advanced the gospel, even if it meant personal suffering for him, he was willing to endure it. His main focus was not having an easy life. His main focus was the gospel being advanced. He said in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that he was in prison suffering as a criminal, but the word of God was not in prison. In Philippians chapter 2 verse 22, he said to the Philippians that Timothy had served with him like a, like a son serving his father in the furtherance of the gospel. And what Paul is saying is that his circumstances, this is what he's saying to the Philippians, his circumstances had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. So Paul is basically saying that it was the strategy of the Holy Spirit to put him in the situation where he was with and under the military for this four or five year period in order that the gospel could be more strategically advanced. Uh, the quote here, and you may can't read this, but this is from the commentary of uh, uh, William Barclay, letters to the Philippians, Colossians, and Thessalonians. He says, Paul was a prisoner, but so far from his imprisonment ending his missionary activity, it actually expanded it for himself and for others. In fact, the bonds destroyed the barriers. Paul's imprisonment, so far from shutting the door, opened the door to new spheres of work and activity into which he would never otherwise have penetrated. His imprisonment had opened the way for preaching the gospel to the finest regiment in the Roman army. No wonder, he declared, that his imprisonment had actually been for the furtherance of the gospel. All the Praetorian Guard knew why Paul was in prison. Many of them were touched for Christ. Paul's bonds had removed the barriers and given him access to the flower of the Roman army. So, did the Holy Spirit have a strategy to utilize the military and the social networks of the military 
to advance the gospel. And what I would say to you tonight is, yes, absolutely he did. And the primary proof of that is not only the narrative in the book of Acts, but also the direct words of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church, which he wrote while he was in prison there among the Praetorian Guard. So what does that imply about our stewardship living in a place like Hampton Roads? I've been traveling now for about 16 or 17 years. I also serve as the military pastor at First Baptist Norfolk, but I do this nonprofit that I started back in 2003 to where we help mobilize churches to be more strategic and more intentional in military ministry, evangelism, disciple-making, support, and caregiving uh, the word we use is missional. Missional is a word that simply means that you make the, the, the Great Commission the heart of what you do. And so it's like your church. Um, missions is not one thing that you do in this church. Missions is everything that you do in this church. Everything that you do, everything in ev- every evangelical church that we do needs to relate directly to the Great Commission. Because the Great Commission is who we are. Our identity as Christians, as evangelical followers of Jesus, is that we are all about the mission. That is our identity. That is why we live. That's why the church exists. The church exists for mission. And so, again, go back to that that question. How can your church most strategically advance the gospel within your region and from your region to the ends of the earth? Acts 1-8 strategy. That's why your church exists. We have all kinds of other programs in the church, and they're great, but every program in the church, everything we do in the church should be intimately tied to the great commission of Jesus. What I've found in my travels over the last 16 years with this uh, military missions networks organization that I started and a lot of other people work with it is that as I go to military communities and I talk to churches just like your church, that many churches do not have any strategies in terms of how they're going to evangelize, disciple, care for, and connect military that come and go from their church. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to ask you to look at, I'm going to read, I normally teach out of the uh, New American Standard, but tonight I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. I'm going to read the entire chapter of, of uh, Acts chapter 10, and I want you to listen with me um, for three main points um, that come directly out of Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> and here, here's the first point, because these are some principles that we can draw from Scripture about a church located in a military community like your church. Now, you guys do know that Hampton Roads is one of the top three most military populated communities in the world. If you take um, Hampton Roads, uh, the seven cities of Hampton Roads, and you take um, D.C. and Northern Virginia, and you take San Diego and North County San Diego, which is Count Pendleton, Those three regions comprise over 50% of the United States military. Hampton Roads is literally 
the most populated military community in the world. So what does it imply about your church that you have been providentially planted in this community? Back in the 80s when I pastored in Delville, Alabama, which was a small little town that existed primarily for the Army Post, Fort, Fort Rucker, I used to tell my church back in those days, we do not have to pray about what the mission of our church is. The primary mission of our church, this has been established by Providence, is that we have been planted in this area primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to win, build, and send men and women and their families connected to the United States Army because our church was two miles from one of the main gates of the base. Here are the three points from Acts chapter 10. Number one, God has a missionary heart for the military people group. The first Gentile convert in the church was a military man. The first Gentile family in the church was a military family. God has a missionary heart for military people. Now, we already know that, right? Because God has a heart for all people. The Lord Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. We already know that God has a heart for all people. But I love the fact that God put it in Scripture that there is an example in Scripture that he has a heart for military people. Number two, God has a missionary plan to reach military communities. Now, if God has a heart for military people, obviously, he's going to have to have a plan to reach military communities. Guess what his plan is? Nansman River Baptist Church. First Baptist Church of Norfolk. God has a missionary plan to reach military communities. And number three, God has a missionary strategy to use military believers as a means of fulfilling the Great Commission, as a means of advancing the gospel very strategically from your region and from your region or within your region and from your region to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 10, listen for those three points. God has a missionary heart for military people. God has a missionary plan to reach military communities. And God has a missionary strategy to use military believers as a means of fulfilling the Great Commission. Luke says, in Caesarea, remember Caesarea was a military community, a significant military community. There lived a Roman office, army officer named Cornelius who was a captain of the Italian regiment means he was most likely from Italy. He was very loyal to um, the Roman troops. He was a devout, God-fearing man. He wasn't a Christian, but he was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor, and he prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him, Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius stared at him in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. The angel replied, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa 
and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon a tanner who lives near the seashore. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier. I like to tell military people in my church that God uses TAD or TDY. And if you're not military, that simply means temporary duty when you go somewhere else, serve in a, for, in a t- for a temporary job. Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants. He told them what, he had, ha- what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius... Messengers were nearing the town. Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. It was about noon, and he was hungry. While, he, while a meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. And you guys remember this story very well. He saw the sky open, and something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles, and birds. Then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord Peter declared, I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean. But the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The same vision was repeated three times. Then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? Just then the men sent by Cornelius found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, the three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry for I have sent them. Did you guys catch that? God sent the apostle Peter to preach the gospel to the military because God has a heart for military people. And Peter went to Caesarea, and Caesarea is a military town because God has a plan to reach military communities. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you are looking for. Why have you come? They said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He is a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that he, he can hear your message So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers, Jewish believers from Joppa. They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up. I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went outside, inside where many others were assembled. Now, remember this. That God has a heart for military people. God has a plan to reach military communities. And God has a strategy to use military believers to advance the gospel. Cornelius was not yet a believer, but he was already prepared by God to be an instrument of God to advance the gospel. Peter told them, you know that it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. 
Cornelius replied, four days ago, I was praying in my house about this same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once. And it was good of you to come. Now we are all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. And friends, I would like to say to you that there are many thousands of military that are sent to Hampton Roads every year. And they are waiting to hear a message about the gospel from your church. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is a message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching his message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear not to the general public, but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were with those who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Then Peter asked, can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. That is a great story and what it illustrates for us is that God truly does have a heart for military people. He truly does have a plan to reach military communities and he really wants to use military believers as vehicles to advance the gospel in the world through their military service. I don't know if your church has ever done this but one of the things that I like to tell churches when I go and have a chance to share with churches is to think about why it is strategic to reach the military with the gospel. And I'm going to give you seven reasons very quickly here. Number one, because the military is composed of the young generations. And guys, we know that if, we, if our churches are going to re-evangelize our nation and spread the church once again in the gospel across the nation in a powerful way, then we're going to have to reach the young generations. Military ministry is a great way to do that. The military is very racially diverse. It is a melting pot of our nation and the nations. And if we are going to reach our nation with the gospel, then we're going to have to reach all the races and all the ethnicities. The military is transient. 
Now, I know most churches don't like to hear that because we don't, some churches go, well, I, you know, I love the military, but I don't really want to get that involved with them because, you know, they move. Guess what? That is a wonderful attribute. Why? Because it actually helps us be more effective in spreading the gospel because the military are transient. The military are influential. They train leaders well. The military are open based on their challenges and their experiences and their values. I find that the military are very open to the gospel. Cross-cultural experience. They have a global mindset because they travel all over the world. And number seven, it multiplies the impact of your church because you have a chance to be very strategic in advancing the gospel by investing in people that are sent to you for short seasons of time and by winning them to Christ, discipling them, building up them up the faith, training them to be leaders, training them to be elders, and then sending them out to other congregations or other places, other countries where they can do the work of the gospel. And that is a direct reflection on your effectiveness as a church. Now, how do we engage? I want to spend the last 10 minutes here tonight talking about how we engage them, the methods and the strategies. And if you'll pull up the slides here, two or three um, short slides. Um, first of all, the gospel for the military. And you see here that the gospel for the military, um, the military is made up primarily of millennials and Generation Z serving in today's military. Millennials are born between 1981 and 1996. Um, 24 to 39 years old, Generation Z, born between 1997 and 2012. That is eight years to 23 years old. Next slide, please. 51%, 51.7% of the military are between the ages of 17 and 25. That's Generation Z and then the younger millennials. 43%, just a little over 43% of the military is millennial or 40 years old or a little bit older than 40. That is, would be the Generation X. Thus, more than half of all the enlisted force of all the branches are under 25 years of age. Now, church, if we're going to reach America with the gospel, we're going to have to reach the young generation. The military is a great place to do that. Military ministry is basically young adult ministry. Of that group, which is approximately 80% male and 20% female, just over one half are married and in general married much sooner, younger than their civilian counterparts in the general population, according to uh, Pew Research. Around half of all married couples have children. Next slide, please. Generation Z makes up the junior enlisted ranks, E1 to E5. Generation Z makes up virtually all ROTC, service academy like Air Force Academy, Naval Academy, um, West Point, cadets and midshipmen and most of the officer candidate schools like OCS members as well as the vast majority of, of O1s. Millennials, that's like um, ensigns or, or second lieutenants. Millennials are now the movers and the shakers between E5s to E8s. Almost all are, are the operational senior NCO ranks and most O2s to uh, O5s. <clears throat> so, the military is a great mission field. Your church is located 
strategically in the midst of this people group. Here's what I find with so many churches that are just like your church, and I have no idea about your church, but what I find in many great evangelical churches located in places like San Diego, uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina, Jacksonville, Florida, Norfolk, Virginia, Newport News, Virginia, Washington, D.C., Colorado Springs, Colorado, is that the vast majority of churches do not have any strategies in terms of how they're going to engage this very strategic people group with the gospel. So the first thing that I would say to your church is that you need some organized approach to ministry. One of the things that I encourage churches to do is to think of four different categories. I've already mentioned them earlier tonight. Evangelism and outreach. How are we going to reach the military? How are we going to reach the military? I'm, one of the things that I do at First Baptist Norfolk, I've been at First Baptist Norfolk uh, going on 17 years, supposedly part-time. You know how that is. But uh, one of the things that I do in the church is I work with young adults. And we have anywhere from 70 to 100 young adults that are predominantly military, most of them are young enlisted, some junior officers. And we have very deliberate strategies about how we're going to reach that population. So what are your strategies for reaching military that don't know about your church or not going to come to your church? What are your strategies for discipling and equipping them for the challenging lifestyle that they have embraced, especially if they stay in the military long term? How are you going to support them and care for them with their unique needs and challenges? Who are you going to network with in order to pass those off that have come and been a part of your church and then moved on to other places as well as receive military that are being sent from you, to you from other locations? Right now, I have two sailors that <clears throat> live with me. Um, one of them was um, recently went through BUDS, which is, was trying out to be a Navy SEAL. Um, he got injured, so he was put back in the fleet, uh, resent to um, another school to prepare to come to Norfolk. Then he comes back to Norfolk. A friend of mine who does military ministry in Coronado, California, which is where they do Bud's training, sent me a text and said, hey, got a wonderful young man coming there. And before this young man named Matt ever came to my, uh, or to, got to Norfolk, I contacted him. He now lives with me. He's getting out of the military, and he's going into the ministry. He's becoming a pastor. I have another young sailor that lives with me. I usually have two sailors at the time that I rent rooms to that I do in-home discipleship. And um, about a month or two ago, he was scheduled to go to um, Yokosuka, Japan, and he came to me after our young adult meeting one night. We have a young adult worship gathering on Sunday nights. He came to me after that meeting and he said, I can't leave this ministry. I want to get out of the Navy and stay here. Can I move in with you and will you disciple me? 
I said, absolutely. And now he's preparing to go into the ministry. Two amazing young men that I have the chance to mentor and help train and get in a pipeline to train to be in pastoral ministry. So organized military ministry. Most churches have no strategy. They have no plans on how they're going to do that. For a church in Hampton Roads, I would say that you're not being as effective as you need to be unless you have some strategies and plans on how you're going to do these things with the military community. Number two is indigenous leadership. Indigenous leadership are your access to the military. Now, our chaplains, we work with chaplains all the time. We have good relations with chaplains in, um, at First Baptist Norfolk. Um, but my primary access to military and the reason our church is reaching so many young enlisted and so many junior officers, more enlisted than officers, the reason we're doing that is because they are the access. I don't have access to them. Um, they have access to each other. They live on the ships with each other in the birthing areas. They train with each other. They deploy with each other. And so our goal is to fulfill Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 with them to equip the military saints to do the work of military ministry. Most churches that have a lot of military, it's because the military they have take responsibility for the ministry and begin to reach out to other military. Um, another thing I would say to you in terms of how to engage them with methods and strategies is understand them generationally. Um, the military that are coming in now, all the young um, sailors and soldiers and Marines and so forth are primarily from the Generation Z. We need to understand Generation Z. We can study that um, generation, understand how to reach them. We need to understand the military culturally. Their, their lifestyle is distinct to the point, I believe, of meriting a specialized approach to ministry. And the last thing I'll say tonight, and I'll be glad to talk with anybody that would like to, to talk after we dismiss, is take them where they are. This generation is very broken. If you work with um, students or with young adults, you know this already. This generation is very broken, especially sexually. They are very broken. The military lifestyle, um, there's less separation between professional and the personal life. They're together a lot. Um, pornography is rampant. A lot of things that they get into, there's extreme amount of loneliness. They are very broken. Every Friday night in my house, I have a um, Bible study, and we have um, dinner, cook a home-cooked meal. Uh, last th uh, Friday night, I had 30 mainly sailors there because we're reaching these, these young adults, and we're telling them, hey, we want to meet your friends. Bring your friends, and we use hospitality. We use food, of course, and those kinds of things to get them. So I just want to challenge you, your church, and I want to pray here so we end up on time. I want to challenge your church, wherever you are in ministry to the military, I want to challenge you guys to go to the next level. I want to challenge you to think strategically about how you can more effectively advance the gospel 
within Hampton Roads and from Hampton Roads by strategically reaching the military with the gospel. Father, I pray tonight for this body of believers that you will give them a passion and a motivation to take the gospel to the military. Father, I pray that you will raise up leaders in this congregation, maybe veterans, maybe active duty service members, maybe military spouses who will say, we will help our church family do a better job at bringing the gospel to the military and making disciples among military people and training leaders to reach their peers and to take the gospel to the ends of the earth through deployments and through military transfers. Father, for those of us who are in Hampton Roads, I pray that we will not fail in our stewardship that has been given to us by your providence, by placing us, planting our churches in the most military populated region of North America and the world. Hampton Roads, Virginia. Father, I pray that you bless this congregation as they seek on Wednesday nights to be challenged to take the gospel to all people and to faithfully do that as a church, looking forward to that day when we all will stand before Jesus and give an account of our lives and our ministry. Thank you for our time together tonight, Father. Bless us as we go our ways, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for allowing me to come tonight.